What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark State. And a big thank you to everyone who makes this show possible. Our wonderful patrons over on Patreon, our wonderful academates on the Bestseller Academy, and all of you who are listening today. And this week, we welcome two new patrons. So budge up, budge up at the back. Make room, please. Make room for Deborah Rowe and Phil Oddie, thank you both of you for your support. We simply could not do the show without you. Uh, Mr. D, how are you today, sir? I'm doing good. I think we need to give everyone a public warning before we go into today's uh, bestseller experiment. Um, Mark and I were having a really fun chat before we started <laughs> and we got the giggles. So yes, um, if if we start bursting out laughing for no reason whatsoever, we'll try and share why. But no, I'm, I'm in a great mood, to be honest, Mark. I'm Life is good. Life is good. I've had my I've had my shot yesterday, and good bloody hell, it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I I I walked out of the room, going, well, I didn't even notice it. I said, is it done? She said, yeah, I've already done. I said, oh, I was waiting for you to pull out the, the monster needle, and she goes, no, that was it. And I was like, oof, sat there for fifteen minutes, no worries. Walked out of there like Superman. Everyone's like, oh, how was it? How was it? Piece piece of cake. Absolutely brilliant. Superman. And then 24 hours later, I'm like, oh, bloody hell, my arm's really hurting. And then, oh, I'm really knackered. Kids, yeah. I'm going to bed. So I crashed last night and I feel brilliant. So I've had loads of sleep and uh, feel a bit better. But I just want to say to everyone out there, especially the volunteers who are doing mm. all of the inoculation, the vaccines, absolutely brilliant. Good, on, good on everyone doing it. I, yeah. felt, I felt coming out of that room... Um, very humbled by all of the incredible people that were in there just helping people. And it was lovely. It was a lovely experience. So I just want to thank everyone who's out there that's helping in any way. You are all absolute superstars. It really restores your faith in humanity because there's so much bad news at the moment. And then you see these people, like you say, just doing what they do. And I came out of there feeling, I mean, I think I said this on a previous show, but you feel you feel like you've beaten it. You know, you feel like you've got through something and um, it's, uh, yeah, it's that the innovation with the vaccine and all the work that people put into it, it's, we're going to be talking about these times for the rest of our lives. It's just extraordinary. Yeah, it is incredible. And it was one of the nicest moments I had was when, um, when I was sitting there with the nurse and she really took her time. It was lovely. She, she didn't, it wasn't like, like, right, next one through. It was like, you know, actually sitting down and having a chat. And um, the nice thing was that, that, she we were talking about 
things we're looking forward to, you know, once once we get back to some degree of normality. And the one thing that we both said that we're really looking forward to is hugging people. <laughs> I wanted to give her a big hug in that moment. I was like, oh, can't give her a big hug. So I'm really, I'm really looking forward to to that side of things. Cause and I keep saying to everyone who's like was getting really down about COVID for the whole year, I've kept on saying there's gonna be so many good things that are gonna come out of this not least amazing books. I mean, I mean, there are a lot of people who've had a lot of time to contemplate writing, a lot of time to study writing and a lot of time to write. And I'm really excited to see this uh, complete overwhelm of great books coming out. It's a bit like music right now. So many great albums on the horizon. I'm so excited. And it's going to be, I think, the, the, the most active period in history of new releases over the next year to two years, I think, which is something to hugely celebrate about what we what we show up for each week mm, absolutely absolutely it's um i mean the thing is there will be people who will have sat through this and not been able to write at all and i totally understand that i totally understand if you've if if it's just been too much you know um but if you've managed to put pen to paper if you if it's given you the time to do this for the first time in your life then uh curiosity and let's know about that tell us about it you know we'd love to hear your good news stories yeah. And how much, but for people that have been struggling to write or have written and thought, ah, oh, just not really getting together and they're not, it's because their their mood isn't in that right place to write the best they can write. I always go back to that thing that Brian Cranston says, we keep repeating it on this show, but, you know, having been through this year of challenges, your writing is going to be so much richer over the next you know, rest of your life because of what you've experienced, because of what we've experienced. It's going to be, there's going to be such a deeper well to draw from and having, there's nothing about really experiencing something. I mean, when we, when we go into our fiction worlds and write, we're, we're kind of, we are drawing from our own life, but we are making a lot of things up. But the more kind of conflict we've experienced in life, I think the deeper our well is that we can draw on. So I think there's just going to be a dearth of brilliant, brilliant fiction and nonfiction coming out in the next couple of years. So Get on it, folks. Get writing and, and get inspired and, and draw from those emotions that you've been through, the ups and downs. But uh, but Mr. Stay, talking about um, talking about all kinds of fun things happening in your world, what's all this about non-profanity? I know this has come <laughs> up in the coaching about swearing in books, but you just you mentioned before the show, um, you've had to do a non-profanity version. Of the film, yeah. Well, the the film Unwelcome, Your which, book? Is, which is that uh, right? No, it's the film. That's it's the, the film. film Unwelcome, and um, the studio has to deliver different versions of the film. It's not that there's just one version of the film. So you have um, there's obvious stuff like there'll be a closed captions version, there'll be an audio descriptive version for the vision impaired, um, but also and weird things like you get a four by three version. You know, normally we've all got. We haven't all got, but many of us oh. have got widescreen TVs, but you've got to deliver a, a, a 4 by 3 mm. version, which just seems weird to me. But they've got to prepare for every eventuality. And, of course, you have yeah. to well, – I say, of course, you have to provide a version without any profanity in it. Now, uh, this is a horror movie with quite a bit of blood and gore. Um, so I don't know what they're going to do about that, but also quite a bit of uh, fruity language in this as well. So I was uh, the sound mixer – 
Uh, I, I've been doing ADRNEO, which is uh, automated dialogue recording, or, uh, which, or sometimes it's known as additional dialogue recording, which is when you get the main actors back in and they will dub lines that are either unclear or we need an extra line here or there for a bit of clarity or whatever. This, this, I've got to jump on this because this is something a lot of people don't realise actually happens. And I didn't know this for quite a while until somebody said, yeah, well, what do you do if like a plane flies overhead and you're flying, yeah. you know, you're filming outside and the, 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 the dub track's ruined. So, so how much has to actually be redubbed in a typical i mean out of say some unwanted for example is it is it, is it usually a small percentage a, a, a middle chunk or the majority if you're shooting on a studio in a on a sound stage and sound stages are, are called that because they are soundproofed they block out other you could have an aircraft flying over and you wouldn't hear anything um we, where we filmed we they created this enormous sound stage but it was essentially a giant tent and you could hit you know you could hear cars and planes and things so there were moments where we all had to stand there while you know something flew by or drove by um so if you're in a controlled environment actually very but they record dialogue separately anyway because you're also talking about you know massive sound mixes you know Dolby Atmos and what have you, where it's like 40 speakers around the cinema or whatever. Uh, I mean, sound mixing, as you all know, Mr. D, is a dark art. You know, it's it something that's just in, in, incredible and, and transforms a film. But uh, there are some films that you'll watch where hardly any of it is recorded on set. It's all done in ADR and it's so well done these days. Like if you go back and watch films from the 70s uh, where it was really obvious that, you know, that, Jaws is one for this, actually. There's loads of ADR and Jaws where someone would be talking like this and suddenly it's much louder and then suddenly it goes quiet again. <laughs> you know, or there's just a massive... There's suddenly all this white noise in the background and then it's gone. You mm. know, those old 70s movies, you could really spot it. Uh, the other thing is if you're ever watching a film and someone turns their back to the camera and you hear them say something, that was probably dubbed on. That, exactly. You know, they'll be going, oh, we need to tell the audience that so-and-so is her brother. How do we do that? And then they'll find a shot where someone's, you know, turned their back to the camera. They go, put it there, put it there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Sort of oh, that's brilliant. Uh, so there's, there's that, there's the ADR. Uh, but I've also been doing background stuff, which is quite low in the mix. So it's people having conversations in pubs. We've got a bit where there's a couple of police officers on a radio and I had to do, and I, I want to thank Lisa Cutts, the author, Lisa Cutts, who's been on the podcast before. Uh, she's a working copper. And I sent the dialogue to her and said, okay, is this wrong? Is this right? And she sent me a couple, I love acronyms. If you're doing police stuff, she sent me some acronyms, you know, Zulu, Tango, this or whatever, yeah, yeah. which was which was brilliant. So thanks, for, thanks to Lisa for that. And some of it is based on so we had background actors and some of them were just improvising, talking about stuff. And some of it was picked up. So the sound mixer said, these two are talking about painting. So can you do a bit of dialogue around that? So I'm like, great. Yeah, I'm going to go. So, and, and you, you, oh, you write funny. it long. Yeah. So they'll get some actors in who will, who will read that and then they'll drop it in and it'll be so low in the mix. You'll hardly hear it, but it's there and it's all part mm. of the sound mix and, and the makeup, you know? So, but Love I had it. to do also had to do, a non-profanity version of the film. And this is the sort of thing, if you, you can go and look these up on, if you go on YouTube and look up, Snakes on a Plane is probably the most egregious and famous example of this, where Samuel L. Jackson swearing every other line, but he will say, I've had enough of these mother-flipping snakes on this mother-flipping plane or whatever. And yeah. th th it's so obvious because the lips don't match the movement. Um, but we had apparently we have to do this. Now, you used to have to do this, for when they showed it on airplanes because you know you and i well, will I was remember say, that's yeah 
Because it's all there for like, it'd be that little screen, wasn't it? One screen that never worked. And everyone would be like, no, 16 (laughs) hours of staring at windows. Because that's all we want. That's what we've paid our money for. We want to watch a crappy movie on a little microwave size screen <laughs> that flips down and someone i know but on on that note i i just just to pause you there for a minute i have a very funny story about that because i watched die hard mm. on a plane and i i was i was a, a bit younger and i wasn't really oh, maybe i'm dating myself here but the the somebody kept being called a melon farmer I'm like, <laughs> what's a melon farmer <laughs> it was only when i saw that's the actual it. original that's exactly years later it. Brilliant. I thought I want to find a dictionary of all the best kind of alternative versions of swear words as used in airplane versions of films. Well, that's what I had to do. But I mean, the thing is airplanes now, there's a screen on the back and there's, you know, you there are parental controls so if you don't want your kids to watch anything with swearing you can choose that when you when you book your ticket now i believe you know so um you know there's no there's no real need for it so but it's something we have to deliver so i've i was given you know uh scenes in the film and lines of dialogue that i had to change so there's a lot of replacing the f-bomb with flip flipping this flipping that Oh, fupping, which is one that's... Um, but that, but that actually sounds like the, the actual word, doesn't it? It's, well, it's, it's so it's, close. It's used on Father Ted. There's there's a there's a Father Ted episode where he goes, have you taken my fupping whistle? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, it's an Irish film. I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. put fupping in there. Oh, so we've course. got we've yeah, got yeah. that in there too. So Love you know, it. you can have you can have fun with it. There there was one my favorite line was he says just incidentally, he says, oh, they ate my effing grapes. So I've changed that to, they ate my juicy grapes. <laughs> <laughs> and I just I just feel sorry for the actors who will have to go into a recording booth uh, like you Toast of London have, and do this. You could have so much fun with that. You could. Oh, I did. I do did. you know what, though? There's certain jobs. We often sit around at Christmas when we, we pull crackers and we read how bad the cracker jokes are. And, we'll, and it always comes up in conversation like, who actually does who this these, job? Yeah. Who writes these things all year round? They're so bad. But I thought, what a brilliant job to actually be like a specialist in, right, you send me all your swear words in your movies mm. and I am like the world expert in in replacing them with the best lines. And at the same time, giving the uh, giving the actors a real challenge by not laughing so much when they have to re-record it. I think it's great. There's got to be a there's got to be a job title that we could create for that, and maybe well, find are, somebody does that I, as a. I mean, a someone someone has to write the subtitles for translations, you know. Uh, and when it's done mm. badly, it's terrible. You know, you've, we've watched those foreign language films where the subtitles or the dubbing is terrible. But when it's done well, it's like Studio Ghibli when they redid a lot of their movies. So I think it was a Princess Mononoke. They got Neil Gaiman to do the subtitles, to do the English language screenplay, Neil Gaiman. And it was it transforms the film. It's just, you That's know, funny. it takes it to the, another level. Talking of language, Mark, I want to show you something. Uh-oh. I got this, I, I ordered this thing. I'm, I'm big into my Pomodoro and I'm, I'm using like these special timers. If you're on YouTube yeah. and watching this, you can see I'm using these special timers. But this came from, um, this came from, uh, China. And um, when I opened the box up, I thought, oh God, they sent me the wrong thing. Because what it says on the top here, you won't be able to see it, but on this little sticker, it says 60 minute visual anal. (laughs) (laughs) Just so everyone was doing so well. We were doing so, skirting know, around the swearing. But, <laughs> you have to lower to, the tone. Let me explain. No, <laughs> let me explain. It's an analog 
timer. Okay, everyone, a visually analog timer. I just want to put that in there. But you can have so much fun with language. Ah, anyway, let's move on. <laughs> it's brilliant. One thing we must talk about, talking about the most... Inc- I, t- I, warned, I did warn people. I did warn people would be laughing heads off this, this show. Um, one thing that we are celebrating, we always talk about everyone celebrating their wins, big or small, sending us their dream declarations. Well, we want to celebrate this week because we have something to announce, which is really exciting. Um, Over a year and a bit ago, we launched the uh, 200 word challenge. If you're new to the podcast, it's, it's an incredible challenge where all you have to do is write 200 words a day, good, bad, or ugly, it doesn't matter. Just get 200 words a day down as a minimum every day. We've got people now, I mean, firstly, we should just celebrate, um, one a kind of like OG, if you like, our original gangster when it comes to the 200 word challenge, Mr. Mark Hood, who has recently passed 500 consecutive days of writing a minimum wow. of 200 words. Isn't that wow. bonkers? Wow. So congratulations, Mark. And congratulations to all the people he's inspired because Adam Jarvis, another academate that we have in the Bestseller Academy, has just hit 250 words. Wow. Which is incredible. So 250 it's, words, it's, 250, 250 days. 250 days, sorry, yes. <laughs> 250 <laughs> words, days, whichever one you want, but consecutively. But the, the most important thing is what we're seeing through this challenge is that people are discovering it is possible to write, even if you have 16 kids, four jobs, and everything else going on in life, you can still write 200 words a day. There's no one in the world that hasn't got 10 or 15 minutes to get those words down. And just to thank every single person, we have over thousands of people now doing the 200 word challenge. Um, But just to congratulate everyone who's been banking their words, which means they're actually coming to the website each day and they're saying, yeah, Mr. Stay does it. I do it as well. 250 words, you know, 201 words, 6,000 words, like whatever you've written in the day, you bank it. And we've been collating every single day for the last uh, 18 months or so. And as of this week, ready, Mr. Stay, a bit of a drum roll, we have reached 15 million words banked, which is absolutely fantastic, blooming incredible. So thank you everyone who's been doing the 200 word challenge. That's a lot of books Mm. that have been written. Mm. And, um, if you are inspired, if you haven't joined up yet, what are you waiting for? And if you have joined up and you've fallen off the horse, which everyone does, by the way, everyone falls off the horse. It's not as easy as it sounds. It's about building a habit for life and it takes a long time to build a habit for life. But but get over to 200, the 200-word challenge, 200wordchallenge.com and sign up and start your streak. So that means how many days can you write before you fall off the wagon? That becomes your personal best and then you have to try beat it. So it's not about failing. It's not about, oh, I didn't write today. It's about how many consecutive days can you write in a row? So well done everyone. And you, Mr. Stay as well, because you've banked a ton of words. You actually, how many books have you now written with the 200 word challenge? Is it two? Two. And uh, and four, five, six short stories. Six short Um, stories. Yeah. Yes, and and actually a couple of script projects as well because I'm I'm doing a I'm doing a first draft of a pilot and I'm doing it handwritten so I'm counting that. That's um, amazing. So, Do you know what I was looking at the statistics the other day, which you can't see unfortunately in the public world, but I can because um, I'm doing a lot of research on the stats. But I can announce that Mister Stays in like the top twenty five. I should bloody hope so. <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing. So um, keep up the good work, everyone. Um, and. We have we have a brilliant, brilliant interview today. That you're going to love this interview. Before we dive into that interview, though, I just want to remind everyone: if you're inspired 
by writing consistently. If you want to break through, if you your dream is to always try and write a bestseller or as good a book as you possibly can do. We are opening the doors to the Bestseller Academy. We're taking on a limited number of people over the next few weeks. So pop over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and register now because it will sell out again as it has done in the last couple of years. So um, dive across to there. Now, Mr. Stay, our guest this week, what an interview this is. We'll talk about 15 million words. I mean, that's just a drop in the ocean for our guests this week. Um, Dean Wesley Smith is basically one of the most prolific writers working in in modern fiction. He's a USA Today bestselling author. He's published uh, something like 200 novels, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of short stories. Uh, He's written all sorts of uh, tie-ins as well. He's worked a lot in the Star Trek universe, Men in Black, Spider-Man, X-Men. He writes with his wife, well, we learn about how they work as collaborators, and it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, Christine Catherine Rush, uh, and they, they've written together under the name Catherine Wesley. Um, I, I mean, this this guy is just a powerhouse. What I love about this, and I do love, I do love Dean talking to him was a real privilege. And it was we had a number of um, listeners say, "Look, you've got to get him on the show." Um, he he doesn't hold back. He has opinions. And we're going to love those opinions. We're going to talk about those opinions at the end. I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but um, yeah, this is this is great fun. Excellent. So let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with the amazing Dean Wesley Smith. Dean Wesley Smith, welcome to the Best Sell Experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm doing very well, thank you, and thanks for having me. Oh, this is going to be such an absolute treat. Uh, you're such a prolific author that I, I actually have one of your novels and I didn't realise it was you. It's um it's actually the 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 tie-in book to the Tenth Kingdom, the TV miniseries, and it's it's written here by someone called Catherine Wesley, which is yep. uh the pseudonym for yourself and Christine Catherine Rush. So this is um <laughs> you're such a prolific author. I've got books and didn't even know I had them. Let's let's just establish how prolific you are. What what are the latest numbers when it comes to novels published and such? Oh, probably around 200 or so. Some of them, you know, I can't claim because I I ghosted them back for um, basically uh, uh, big traditional publishers out of New York would hire me because I was uh, um, fast and mm-hmm. I could mimic other, other writers' voices. And so they'd have uh, these bestsellers that got sick or couldn't turn in a book and they'd already advertised it. And they would come to me and throw a lot of money at me and I'd write write the novel. Um, and so I did that um, numbers of times, probably oh, 15 or 20 in the middle of the 90s up to the first part of 2000. Right. But you, 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 you can't name names for any of those yet, can you? No, not on those. There were a few of them that were outed um, because the uh, authors couldn't handle lying. <laughs> and, so, and there were some celebrities that, that were outed. Um, I did a thriller for a Christian writer um, and he uh, ended up putting my name on the inside of the book. And then I did um, Jonathan Frakes. Um, I was going to write a book right. with, and he was going to have his just his name on it, but he couldn't handle that. So he mm-hmm. put my name on the inside of the book, too. And um, there were there were three or four like that. Um, Eric Catani, I did a science fiction novel for that I thought I never got outed until someone walked up to me at a convention and said, would you sign this? And I said, no, I didn't write it. That's Eric Catani's book, and he opened it up and showed my name on the inside. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I guess I can sign it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but about about 200 under various names and and my own name on, under Dean Wesley Smith. 
Yes. And of course, you mentioned Jonathan Frakes there as a big Star Trek connection. I, I love on your bio, you write that you've written maybe a dozen or so Star Trek uh, books as well, um, which... A couple dozen. <laughs> couple actually. dozen. That's, yes, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> What's a dozen between friends? <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> and I edited for Star Trek for about 10 years, too, in Fantastic. a series called um, Strange New Worlds. Mm. Um, interestingly enough, it's now going to be the next television series, but it won't have anything to do with what I did. Right. But I edited a, um, a anthology for Star Trek for 10 straight years called Strange New Worlds. Yeah, I I read a great many of them, and and on top of that, now you're also you're blogging on a daily basis, and you're you're doing something called Smith's Monthly Short Stories. Tell us about those. Well, actually, um, yeah, I am blogging on a daily basis. I started it, um, I don't know, eight eight years ago, and haven't missed a day, which is mm. mind boggling when I think it's about it. Um, that's at the DeanWesleySmith.com. Um, and sometimes they're, you know, they're decent blogs and other times they're, hi, I'm still alive, go away, um, you know, kind of <laughs> blog, but you know, there, I always write something every night. Um, and the, um, um, Smith's monthly is a magazine and every, I did it for 44 straight months, um, starting, oh, I don't know, way back. And then I took a couple years off when Chris got sick and, and things like that. And now it's back up and running. Um, basically, every issue has a novel, one of my novels, four or five of my short stories, and then usually another book or a serial of another book that I wrote. It's all mine. It's all my content every Fantastic. month. Fantastic. Yeah, I just turned in the third one of the restart. So issue 45, 47 just got turned in. Wonderful. Well, Dean, we have a whole bunch of listener questions. Uh, we've never had such a reaction uh, because I got in touch with you because uh, a couple of our people in the academy were mentioning you. A couple of people in, on our Facebook group mentioned you. I think we've got to get this guy on the show. And um, we've got a, a great number of questions. So let's let's jump right in if that's okay with you. I've got a I've got a question from Jeff White. How the heck does he get so much writing done? What's his secret? Amphetamines, insomnia, super speed. Uh, Dean, what is the secret? Um, well, actually, I'm a fairly slow typist. Um, I, uh, I I usually write about a thousand words an hour um, because I started off I couldn't type, so I was hunting and pecking, you know, a couple fingers. Now I have a few more fingers involved, but I'm still pretty slow. Um, and you know, I've been at this for a long time. That that's part of the secret. But the other part of the secret is I just spend more time in in you know writing than other people do. That's bottom line. I, I spend more time in the chair. And so it's there's nothing magical or I don't type fast or anything else. I just spend more time in the chair. And I always have. I've always outworked everybody. Um, you know, I have uh, kind of a, a blue collar work ethic. That's how I was raised. And and mm. but I don't consider writing work. I consider it play. And so mm. when I'm you know, when I'm sitting down and writing, it's just like, oh, this is just too much fun. I guess I get to sit alone in a room and make stuff up and people pay me enormous amounts of money to do so. And it's just <laughs> silly. Um, but I've been doing it for a long time. I've been a, a full professional since uh, 1987. I sold, sold my first novel in 87 and went full time at that point and never looked back. Wonderful. How did it start for you? Were you, were you always jotting away at school stories? Was it something that you were always into? No, I hated writing. <laughs> when I was young, I, I was into sports and things like that. I hate, I absolutely couldn't write anything. I, I'm not one of those people who, you know, from three years old wanted to be a writer. I hated it. 
Um, I didn't even think about starting to write until after I uh, I was a golf professional back in the early 70s and uh, until I decided to go back to college um, and uh, and because uh, you know, I, I was out of the 60s, that's how old I am. But, you know, I, I decided to go back to college in the early 70s, 74. Um, and uh, um, I had to take a class because I was I was measuring in architecture. I wanted to be a golf course architect. And I had to take this stupid English class um, <laughs> for non-majors. And they made me write some poetry and actually mail a couple of them. And I actually, the only person out of the class that ever sold one mailed, you know, one, one in national contest and sort of thought, well, this is kind of fun. And, and uh, wrote a couple short stories the way I do now, way back then, sold both of them. And uh, then thought, oh, I better start learning about writing. And of course, the minute I thought that, I got into all the myths and all the stupidity of, of writing. And uh, I spent seven years without selling a thing, without even getting a personal rejection. After I'd sold two stories, never occurred to me that I should go back to the method that I sold the two stories with. Um, and I sold about 60 or 70 poems. I was a nationally known poet and all that. And it was I had no, no desire to ever write, just none. And as it started to become fun, um, after I got through those seven years of stupidity, um, um, I just kept going. Yeah. Wonderful. We'll, we'll, we'll get onto the stupidity in some of the later questions. Uh, let's. Uh, we have a question from Matt who says, what do you do if you're partway through a manuscript or when you finish one and you realize the story isn't as interesting as you would like? Do you rewrite it from scratch, <laughs> scrap it, send it out anyway, move on to the next project, something else? Oh, yeah. Just You, you got to finish it. You finish it and send it out. Heinlein's rules. I live by Heinlein's rules. I do my best to stay on them. Heinlein's rules are basically you must write. That's rule number one. Um, rule number two, you must finish what you write, period, no matter what you think of it. Um, rule number three is you must not rewrite. Rule number four is um, you put it in the, in the, on a market, either now you publish it indie or you get it out to a magazine or you know not to traditional publishing, book publishing. They're, they're all scammers now. Um, but you get it out indie, and uh, in the old days, you used to mail it to publishers and stuff. And then the fifth rule is you keep it out and keep it for sale out there. Mm -hmm. So I just live by those five rules. They're very hard to follow. Heinlein came up with those rules in, I think, 1947. And he said in the uh, article that he put down those rules, he said that they are almost impossible to follow. And that's why there are so few professional writers and so many people who want to be writers. Actually, he called them aspirants. Um, and um, but yeah, I, the minute I start, I started in 1982 following Heinlein's rules, and uh, have never looked back. I started yes. selling again because that's what I did with my first two stories. Is accidentally followed Heinlein's rules. I I wrote it, didn't rewrite it, mailed it, and both of them sold. So when you're partway through a manuscript, you just finish it. Finish it. What yeah. happens at that point is what's stopping you is your critical voice. And the minute you let your critical voice into a story and it overwhelms your creative voice. So you just have to trust the creative voice and just keep writing, finish it. No matter what you think of it, you put it on the market and then go on to the next story, which is another reason why I am so prolific. I never look back. I never look at the old stories. I just keep writing new all the time. A lot more fun too. Yeah, yes, definitely. Finishing, finishing is one of the most 
it's it's one of these things we we drum into our listeners all the time is just finishing is the most important thing because so often we find you know starting a story is kind of easy you get the ball running you have fun with it and sooner or later you have to make story decisions your characters have to make choices that have consequences and then you kind of get bogged down in decisions and oh should i do this should i do that this brings me to uh, liz green's question she says how do you know what your characters will do next. If I don't know what my characters will do next, what do I need to do differently? And and this is what can stop people in the tracks, isn't it? Making those difficult decisions, you know, characters make choices that have consequences. Do you ever get bogged down like that? No. <laughs> no, because I write into the dark. I start off with a title, usually, or some phrase or something. I don't have any idea who my characters are or anything else. I just start writing. And I let the characters direct me. My, my creative voice as the characters and I, they'll get into corners and, and, and places where I'll, you know, if my critical voice will go, how are you going to get them out of there? And I'll go, I don't care. I'm just going to write the next sentence. Mm-hmm. And all I do is write the next sentence. And then I write the next sentence. And eventually I find my way to the end of the story. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have any idea what my characters are going to do. They, they often surprise the hell out of me. And I just have a blast because I don't care. I just, I, you know, see, if you care about what your characters are going to do next and you care, what you're caring about is a story, a product, instead of the actual writing process. What I care about is having fun in the process of writing and following my characters. Whatever comes out at the end comes out at the end. You know, it's just, I just let that be, which is why I've made so much money over the, over the decades <laughs> um, is because I, you know, if I don't, if, if I don't know what my characters are going to do, my readers sure don't know. Mm. And, uh, you know, and that's that's the key to making stories like, how the heck did he figure out all of that? Well, I just wrote the next sentence. A, a lot of that confidence of just saying, I'm going to keep going, that comes from experience. That comes from the experience of finishing things, knowing that you have got to the end and the world hasn't ended. No, I did this right from minute one. <laughs> um, it, it, what it comes from more than anything else is, is just um, – Basically, stop caring about the end product and care about having fun writing and becoming a better storyteller. Um, if you stop caring about the end product and, and you stop worrying about the manuscript and, oh, what, will it sell or will people laugh at me or all of those silly things that, you know, nobody can hurt you in fiction writing. I mean, it is the <laughs> safest thing you can do because um, there is nothing. And, but see, so all the fear in fiction is made up. It's all inside your own head which is, of course, where the creative voice lives, too. So you have to get all that stuff out of your way and just plug into the creative voice and go play. Just go have fun. And whatever comes out at the end comes out at the end. No big deal. Wonderful. Wonderful advice. We've got a bunch of questions from Josh Atkinson. Uh, what's Dean's writing process for those those weeklies? And how do you manage switching from short stories to novels? And how do you manage switching between genres? Now, having heard your answers already, I'm guessing none of this is a problem for you. You just, I'm going to write a Western. I'm going to write a fantasy. I don't, I don't, I don't have a clue what I'm going to write <laughs> when I start. All I do is I sit down and I'm like, oh, let's write. And I'll be going along and they're like, oh, this sort of feels like it's going like a novel. Well, we'll see where this goes. And, or I have a lot of series characters. I have like 15 or 20 different series that I write in. And every so often, one of those characters will just pop up and I'll get, oh, it's a, you know, it's a poker boy story or, oh, it's, it's one of my diving and, you know, or it's one of my cold poker gang stories or things like that. Um, and so, um, I don't, I don't even worry about the, see, genre is a marketing aspect and, uh, 
I couldn't care about marketing when I'm writing. All I care about is the process of writing. So if you're worried about switching a genre or doing something, see, you're working, you're already worried about the product at the end, the, whatever's going to come out. And, and it, the moment you start worrying about that product, your critical voice gets in and shuts you down. Hmm. And so, you know, you just, just let it be what it wants to be. Let the story either be a short story or a novel. Just if it wants to be a romance, let it be a romance. If it wants to be science fiction, let it be science fiction. And then you worry about marketing it when you're done <laughs> at the end. Yeah. Then you worry about where you're going to put it yeah, and how guess, you're going to sell it. I guess that's the thing. If you sit down, crack your knuckles, think, I'm going to write a fantasy novel. Then you start thinking about fantasy genre conventions. And then that that's just another thing that's going to slow you down, isn't it? Yep. Yep. Automatic. It just, it'll just, it'll crash you. Um, you know, it'll stop you cold. The minute you start worrying about the end product and, oh, what genre is this? And, oh, is my mother going to like this? You're done. <laughs> You're done. What you do is put all those thoughts out of your head and say, what's the next sentence? Yeah. And then just write the next sentence. That's all. It's very simple. It's a very simple. And have fun. Part of the fun is think of, think of novels a lot like getting on a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. You know, you climb on and it's pretty tame and you know where you're going at the start. And then suddenly you're you're all over the place and you're scared and maybe a little bit thrilled and a little bit this and a little bit that. Well, that's the process of writing a novel. And then at the end, you come coasting back into the deal and you can start again. Wonderful. Now, you mentioned stupidity earlier, so let, we might get onto this. Laura Shepard has a very good question, uh, which is, are there any classic writing rules Dean thinks people should Ignore. And you talked about that seven years of stupidity. T- take us through that and, and the writing rules. Oh, what I what happened with me in those seven years is I bought into all the myths of writing. See, professional writers, even though the problem with long-term professional writers is that we have fans. Now, I, I, I like my fans, um, you know, but I don't lie to them where most professional writers feel they have to. Um, so they'll say, oh, I've done three drafts or four drafts or 27 drafts or some stupid number like that. And, you know, and so rewriting and and that's that's taught by, you know, um, classroom type of stuff. Um, and it's basically put out because readers know these same rules, so know these same myths. And so, you know, if you're a writer and you go into like a, a, a signing or something and, and you say, yeah, I, I wrote this book in about, you know, two and a half weeks and only one draft, people are going to be less hesitant to put out, mo- are going to be hesitant to put out money for it. Mm-hmm. But if you stand up there and lie to them, because that's your job, once Block called it telling lies for fun and profit, um, <laughs> you know, basically you, you stand up there and say, yeah, this book took me quite a while from its generation point to, you know, you just lie through your teeth. And that's what the long, the big, big bestsellers do. That's why you'll hear Stephen King or Koontz or people like that, who all are one draft writers. Um, basically just lie through their teeth because they want the people to say, oh, I'll, I'll pay you $15 or $30 for that hardback, you know, but if you stand up there and say, yeah, I wrote this in about a week and a half and didn't <laughs> even rewrite it. Uh, yeah, no. Um, so the classic writing rules, you should ignore rewriting. That's, that's just bogus. Um, uh, it, that's the worst thing. That is, I think the, the transition becoming from becoming a beginning wannabe writer to becoming a professional writer is when you stop rewriting. And when you rewrite, what's happening is you're rewriting from your critical voice. So you're killing your own voice. You're killing all of the originality of a story because you're dumbing it down. Um, and so it's, it's you know, the word polish. I, I just shake my head when someone says, oh, I had to polish that story because what occurs with polishing 
is imagine a really beautiful rock that you found like on the beach or something, and it's got sharp edges and it's got all kinds of cool stuff. And then you throw it in a polisher and it comes out looking like every other polished rock. (laughs) And that's what you don't want to happen. You want to leave the sharp edges. You want to leave the inconsistencies. You want to leave the stuff that makes it your voice and your story. And that's what sells. And so in those seven years, I sold those two short stories and all those poems. And then I thought, oh, I better learn writing. And so I started reading all the the stuff from teachers and people who never did write a book about, oh, you got to rewrite 12 times and you've got to polish this and you've got to do that. And you got to have everything in perfect grammar. Nobody talks in perfect grammar. You know, if you've got strunk and white, that thing, throw it out the window. Um, if, if you're, you know, basically that sort of stuff, because that's not what fiction is. That's what nonfiction is, but that's not what fiction is. And fiction is real people talking like I'm talking right now. I don't think I've said a grammatically correct sentence since I started, but the reality here is, is that um, you get rid of these those are classic writing rules that hurt. I went into those rules, rewrote everything. You know, the old the old uh, cliche about, oh, if you write slower, you write better. Well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. No, you just write, let your creative voice put it down and then put it out. Um, so, I, But I fell into all those. And it took me seven years before I finally discovered Heinlein's rules and went, well, wait a minute. Ray Bradbury's writing sometimes a story a day, sometimes a story a week. Mm. Uh, he didn't rewrite. Harlan Ellison sits in bookstore windows and doesn't rewrite anything, never touches his manuscripts again, writes on a typewriter. Basically, at that point, King had actually made a couple comments about things. This was back in the 1982 when I finally got out of that seven year in the desert. And um, I was about ready to quit, just like anybody would quit after seven years of no success. And uh, the moment I went back to Following Heinlein's rules, I just wrote, I finished, I didn't rewrite, didn't get feedback from anybody other than I fixed a few typos and mailed it, and I immediately started selling stories again because I let my voice come out. And from that point on, I've never looked back. Fantastic. You used a phrase earlier, writing in into the dark. Tell us tell us mm-hmm. about that. That's just basically um, you you don't have any idea where you're going. You don't ha- you don't have an idea. You don't have a, a an outline. You don't plot. I, often I don't even have characters until one of them appears right in the opening somewhere. Um, you just into the dark. It's like the room is completely dark and you're putting color in it and you're putting light in it and, and off you go and you don't have any idea where you're going. The minute, you know, the minute a writer says, oh, I got to this point and I needed to figure out where I was going. I'm like, well, you're done. <laughs> you're, you're done. It's going to be a boring book because if you have to figure it out, that comes from your critical voice. And the critical voice is is a um, it's just dull. It's going to make it safe. It's going to make it just like everybody else's book. And uh, and so the minute you have to figure something out, the readers will figure it out too, and you'll be done. It'll be a boring book, and nobody will buy any more from you. Wonderful. We got a question from Queeve McDonald, who says, "Ask Dean to explain the bakery concept. It's great, and the core of his approach to the business." So, tell us about the bakery concept, Dean. Yeah, that's on the business side, not on the writing side. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what we we don't sell stories; we license them. We license copyright, is what it is. Yeah, and copyright is magical. It is just magical when you actually stand back and look at it. Um, which beginning writers just don't. Mm. They don't even understand copyright. They think they're selling their stories. No, you're licensing stories. Um, for example, let me give you the most clear example. You you got a bakery. 
Okay. And you walk in the door and if you've only written one or two short stories or novels, and you walk in the door and you've got one pie and a cupcake sitting on a shelf and that's all you got in the entire bakery and all the other shelves are empty. As a customer, what do you think the customer is going to do? They're going to turn around and leave because there's no product. It looks empty. Okay. So that's why beginning writers take a while to build up. It takes, it takes a bunch of stuff. The second part about a bakery is say, say you have like my bakery is just jam full. I mean, I got six, 700 short stories out there and, you know, 200 <laughs> novels and, I don't know how many nonfiction books and all the other stuff I've done over the years. So my bakery, you walk in and it's got choices for everybody. So I'm constantly selling stuff. So see the analogy there. The, uh, <laughs> the other side of it is, is that um, from the, from the copyright side, um, you've got say a plate of cookies. Those are short stories that you have up, say on Amazon that you have licensed to Amazon and they're licensing, licensing those stories to their customers. So a customer in, you know, in, in say, Great Britain um, buys a cookie. Well, does that cookie disappear from your platter in your bakery? No. It just magically is still there. <laughs> Even though someone bought the cookie, the cookie is still there and can be continually resold over and over. It's magic. It's just magic. You know, you can continually sell copyright. That's why you never want to go to a traditional book publisher and sell all rights Oh, that's just disastrous, which I did for a lot of years because that was the only game in town. Um, but, uh, you know, it just just basically <laughs> it's magic because somebody buys something and no, you still have the copyright and you can still sell it again. Wonderful. That's what the magic bakery is. Wonderful it's of course, stuff. it's an entire book and it's an entire course on on our in one of our classes. But Very it's fun. also a book. Andy Chapman has a, a question. Does Dean still find time to read outside of all that writing? Oh, sure. The problem is, is, is it about, um, oh, I think it was 10 years ago now, 10 years ago this summer, coming summer, um, I had a stroke while I was helping a friend. He was dead. I was taking care of his estate and I was working too hard and on too much caffeine and doing everything. And I had a stroke and lost an eye. Oh. Um, and so I only have one eye. And so I have to be very careful on my reading and how much computer time I spend. And mm -hmm. so I have to prioritize it. So you know, of course, writing is first. And so I prioritize that. And then I have um, the workshops I do and the email and stuff like that. But I'm constantly taking breaks and looking out the windows and going on walks. And I do a lot of exercise. I just ran a marathon this year. Wow. Uh, actually, I sort of finished a marathon. I don't know if you'd call it <laughs> successfully <laughs> running a marathon, but I finished a marathon. I'm 70 years old and I finished a marathon. Wow. Um, and so I, it's, I kind of balance the screen time, the writing time. And so the long way around to answer that question is, yeah, I just read a brand new novel that Chris just finished. And then I just read just literally last night for uh, you know, a brand new novella that Chris just finished. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so I probably read quite a bit. Reading is really important to writing. You, you just, you just got to do it because it, it keeps replenishing and doing things you know, as much as you can outside with this pandemic, you can't go too far, but, you know, eventually we'll be out of this thing, I hope. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we've got to uh, mention your wife, Christine, there. Uh, we've got a question from Robin Sarty who says, his wife, Christine Catherine Rush, is also a fabulous author. What are the main differences in their writing approaches? Do they write together, shared writing space or separate offices? And oh, how do they balance no. creative time and family time? Oh, well, we have no kids or anything. We have a couple of cats. 
Um, but um, we've been together for 35 years. And right from the beginning, we stayed a long ways apart. <laughs> a long ways. We had for uh, 23 years on the Oregon coast, a, a uh, literally it was a 10-bedroom house sitting up on the cliff overlooking the ocean. And um, it was fantastic. And we also then bought the neighbor's house. And, and she had her office over there. And I had my office in another building. We had this entire compound for 23 years that, you know, if one of us wasn't sure where the other one was, Oh, it was, it was difficult to find uh, <laughs> because it was just gigantic. Um, now we live in a condo in downtown Las Vegas and she has um, an office on the other side of a wall for me here. And I have this office, but then we have another condo that we have just got down. We're up on the, uh, one of the penthouse condos. We have a condo down on the first floor that we're going to use for offices and stuff. And she's basically spends most of her writing time and stuff down there. And I'm here in my little alcove. I've got um, seven screens around me. I'm have, I'm completely encircled by screens, and uh, you know, and big Macs, the biggest Macs with secondary screens and stuff. And so I'm I'm kind of in my little alcove here. And one of them's my writing computer. One of them's my internet computer. I have ancillary computers for doing covers and things like that. So we stay way apart, and we never write. We tried to write together. We did a lot of books, actually, right now. Catherine Wesley, the one you mentioned yes. earlier, yeah, yeah, is yeah. a pen name. Um, and how we and, and in fact, we just did a um, we just finished a um, Kickstarter um, that did really well. It surprised us um, that um, has six um, collections of our science fiction short stories, um, 10 of hers and 10 of mine, 120 stories. And um, we're calling it Colliding Worlds. It'll be out in May. I think all six books will be out in May. Um, and we kickstarted this and we did a video. And I think if you go to colliding worlds on Kickstarter, you can see us talking together about our, our collaboration process, which is non-existent <laughs> when we wrote novels together, either she wrote the whole thing, even though both of our names were on it, or I wrote the whole thing, or I wrote a very short first draft, like a hundred page first draft of the novel that had no setting, no dialogue, nothing. It was just basically plot. And I'd give it to her and she'd, she, what she called color, she'd color in the dialogue and the setting. And that's how we collaborated. Otherwise we'd kill each other. <laughs> not kidding. I got, I got one more question from Tanya yeah. Scott. who says, Dean inspired me to self-publish. He's so astute on the business side. Can you ask him where he thinks publishing will be in 10 years time? I mean, we've, we've just gone through incredible changes in the publishing industry. What, what, what do you see in the future, Dean? Yeah, that's that's a, a really really good question um, because of the aspect of what's going on right now. I mean, traditional publishing on the novel side, not the magazine side. The magazines are still good for writers and they do a good publicity, but the um, um, the novel side in traditional, both in the states and in Britain and in Canada, um, is pretty much they're grabbing all rights and they're not releasing books back to authors and. It's it's a disaster, um, and so and they're not paying hardly anything. Um, in fact, even the bestsellers have have dropped their income by uh, something like ninety percent. Um, it's just it's a disaster going on. So what's going on with traditional is it will be it, it gets a lot of press because indie publishing, meaning writers doing it themselves, um, are you know we 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 don't have a marketing team. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, there's a there's a millions of us, but we don't have a marketing team. And so, you know, we don't get much press. We just do our job and put up stuff and make money. Um, where will it be in 10 years? I think there will be a couple remaining, um, one or two in the States, maybe a couple in Britain and maybe one in Canada and a couple in a, each country will have one or two often connected it by the same conglomerate behind it that will be doing traditional publishing. Uh, meaning it'll, they, the traditional publishers don't sell to readers. They sell into the sales chain, the, the, the trade. And so they're more concerned about selling and bookstores are going down left and right at the moment. And Amazon is controlling. And, and the only way books are really being sold is online at this point. So everything's going that way. Um, I think there'll be a couple traditional publishers left. And I think 90% of all books will be published by um, basically indie writers or people like me and Chris, or, um, you know, we have our own publishing company. Um, we started WMG Publishing. We have five people working for us up in Oregon. Um, they have their own offices up there. You know, we sell books to them. We don't sell them. I mean, we license them to WMG. Um, but that's it. We also sell, we also license to the magazines like Asimov's and the, and the big magazines too. Um, that will continue on. Um, Kevin J. Anderson and his wife, Rebecca Moesto, both bestsellers like Chris and I, they have their own company called Wordfire. A lot of, of people like that are starting up their own company with employees. Um, they started on their own. We started WMG on our own. Basically, it was just me and Chris. And, and eventually it built out so that we could hire people to do stuff that we didn't want to do anymore. Um, so there's going to be a lot of those and there will be a lot of writers just doing it themselves. Basically, uh, um, a friend of mine who is doing making a ton of money and writing about four books a year, I think. And he calls his he has a publishing empire on a laptop. It's just him. He does everything. <laughs> he does the covers. He does. I mean, I do my own covers on Smith's Monthly. I do my own covers on both the short stories and on the novels and on the cover of the magazine. And I do all the layout in the magazine. I do it all still um, because it's just easier. And so it's. I think that's where it's going to be in 10 years. I think it'll be mostly indie and these small companies like Wordfire, like WMG, you know, there's a, there's numbers of them. WMG is about the size of Bain Books here in the United States, um, which is a science fiction publisher. Mm. Most of the big imprints and stuff will be gone in 10 years. There just won't be anything left. There'll be licensing houses in 10 years that will be taking all those poor traditionally published writers who couldn't get their books back and things like that, who sold into it and just basically making money off them and the authors won't get anything. Um It'll be it's, it'll be a sad time for a lot of writers. It'll kill a lot of careers. So you've got to be adaptable. You have to learn how to do your own covers. Um, you got to find someone who can find typos for you. Mm. Uh, you don't need an editor. Uh, you, absolutely, that's one of the scams that I should have mentioned earlier is needing an editor. Um, basically, you just need someone to find typos. And then you put it out. It's very easy to do. Fantastic stuff. Dean Wesley Smith, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Uh, we've all been taking notes. We've all been scribbling notes. We're going to be listening back to this again and again because it's just chock full of the most amazing advice. Thanks so much and hope to speak to you again one day. Okay. Thanks a lot and thanks for having me. Take care and stay safe.
My goodness me, where do we start, Mr. Stay? There is so much to unpack from that interview. Now, I do love someone. I do love someone who comes on the show and tells us how it is because there, you know, there is there are so many things. We know there's so many aspects to writing. Um, and we've been doing this show now for four and a half, closing on five years. We're going to be up to five years in October. But it still amazes me how many different ways there are to write. And I think Dean has given us such a lot of food for thought in that interview. Um, big, big thing though, that stands out for me out the gate, such a truism. I love it. The reason he's so successful is he's just put in more hours than everyone else. I think there's something to be said about that. You know, um, yeah. it's not necessarily just about how quickly you can type. Yeah, it's not. I mean, he's he's put the hours in, but he's also, he's not letting that uh, critical voice hold him back. And I think this is such a key thing to understand in that, especially if you're starting out, because if you're a writer, you've read books. And if you've read books, you've got a certain taste. You know a good book from a bad book, okay? Uh, so you've read, you know, you'll have read a novel by your favourite author. You might have read one of Dean's novels, one of Catherine's novels. You've read it, you've enjoyed it, you've had a really, really good time. Then you start to write your novel and then you start thinking, well, it's not as good as theirs. So therefore, I can't mm. be any good. And that starts to cripple you. It starts to, um, you know, it's, it starts to put, you know, weight on your feet. It slows you down. And I think... If you're going to take anything away from this, it is ignore that critical voice. Just keep writing because uh, you've, I mean, finishing, finishing is so important. And and weirdly, I'm at that stage at the moment. I'm right in the muddy middle of my novel. And there are things where I could stop. I, I got to a bit today and I, I realized, oh, I need, because it's set in the war, I need a barrage balloon. I need a barrage balloon to make this work, this, this action sequence work. And I know that I need to go back and, seed that idea so it doesn't just pop out of anywhere now the old me might have gone back and done that and fixed that and while i'm fixing that i'm going oh i need to fix that and i need to fix that and i knew <laughs> i now know enough just to go i'll leave a note i'll come back i'll fix it and i'm just going to keep going and i'm going to finish it and i'm going to get to the end because the most important thing is finishing but uh yeah yeah, that was huge, actually. I think I love I love Dean's take on that. I love the fact that it's like you just finish it. You finish it whether you think it's a pile of rubbish or not. And you're so you're so right, Mark. I mean, it's one thing that I've talked about in coaching so many times is that what we always do when we compare our work, which we do, it's just a human nature to do that. But what we do is we always look upwards. And and like you say, we don't we sit and read the best selling bestseller books ever you know we read the kings we read the tolkien's we read the grishams we read you know all the books that you know the agatha christie books the 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 the, the people who have been at the top of their game for so long and then we always compare them ourselves to them what we actually need to do is we need to buy a bundle of the worst books ever written the 20 worst books ever written <laughs> read those and then write our book and we'll be like I'm absolutely killing it. You see, because that's the point is, is that if if we're even getting close to that, you know, the, the upper echelons of the, the most brilliant writers to ever walk this planet, then we're doing well. We're doing well. Um, so 
it, it is, he's so right. And then it, it is, it's the biggest, you know, self-criticism self is the biggest destroyer of dreams. At the end of the day, we can convince ourselves, we can talk ourselves out of writing ultimately by pretending that we're no good. Um, the point is, whatever you write will be enjoyed by someone and it might be enjoyed by millions. You just don't know. But if you don't put it out there, you'll never find out. No, absolutely. I think the other thing, big thing to take away, his quote was, I care about having fun in the process of writing and following my characters. Whatever comes out at the end comes out at the end, and I, I let that be. And that's this idea of writing into the dark, of just having the luxury of just going, I'm just going to write whatever today, and it's going to take me wherever I go. And I think for there will be people listening to this who will be terrified by that, and there'll be people listening to this who will be like, this is like the red pill in the matrix. This has just opened yeah. up a whole new world for me. And that's, and, and if, and we want to hear from you. If you've listened to Dean and he's made you, if, if it's a revelation, if you're going, you mean I can write anything I want and just roll with it, then we want to hear from you because that, you know, for some people, that is so incredibly liberating. Yes. Yeah. And that's what, what it's really about. I mean, I think it's, it, it, Dean also talked about this idea of getting too involved in thinking about the product whilst you're writing the book. And, you know, there's a, there's a brilliant adage and we all know the adage of, you know, life's a journey, not a destination. And it is about enjoying as much as you can the process of writing, because actually the majority of your time um, at least in in the creation of the book, will be spent writing. Obviously, we know that you know, there's a lot of time we've got to be spent marketing and, and doing and planning and other things. But such a huge chunk of our life, if we're going to be writing all our life, is going to be spent writing. So we've got to learn. For some people, it is about learning to enjoy the process of writing all of its highs and lows. And Dean, I really get the sense that Dean has found that sweet spot where, and he says it, and it's a really good thing to remember. This isn't a job. You know, if you can get to a place in your life where you love it so much, I know, I know this is you, Mark, as well, because you talk about, I get to do this for a living, right? <laughs> it's like, if you get to, to wake up every day and do what you love, then it, it, it isn't work. It's fun. And it, you feel almost like, a, like guilty that some people are going to work and doing a job, which they absolutely hate because you get up to each day to create. And I mean, I must admit, my, I, I never feel like when I coach and, um, and I write, it doesn't feel like a job. It feels like, um, it's inspiring to do and it's fun to do. And it's, it never feels like an effort. And I never get out of there going, Oh God, I've got a coach again today. It's like, bring it on. This is excellent. Right. I think there will be writers out there who might feel trapped though. And this is yeah. where it, this is the thing that I think Dean has escaped from because he's had a career where he's, you know, he spent a considerable amount of time working with publishers, working with editors, doing these stuff. I mean, writing a Star Trek novel, you just can't go, right, I'm going to write whatever I want. There will be a series Bible. There will be, you know, it's my your just got off. <laughs> there will be, you know, you can't have Captain Picard acting out of character or whatever. You have to stick to certain guidelines. And that is quite constricting. And, you know, writing within constraints is fun and writing tie-ins is its own skill. But I, I imagine that after a couple of decades of doing that, it can, it can wear you down. You might think, right, stuff this for a lark. I am going to write in the dark. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And there's a part of me thinking that when I get to 70, I hope that's me. I hope there's a point where I'm not worrying about what the publisher is expecting. I'm not worrying about what the marketing department is expecting. I mean, I'm working on book three of a series and there are expectations and there's a part of me that puts them aside but 
you know, at some point I'm going to have to confront those expectations. You know, I'm going to have to, uh, whereas with Dean, he's in a position now having had the benefit of, you know, years of experience of being able to say, yeah, I'm just, I'm writing whatever the hell I want. And there will be writers out there who are just starting out who might hear that and go, great, I can do that too. And I think if you can do that, all power to you. But there will be writers like me who are some way into a career or they want to write for a specific market or there's a specific genre they want to to work with who might run away from that or might find that a little bit terrifying. But I yeah. think a career evolves over time. A career changes. And, you know, for it me, does. I, w- yeah. I want to be Dean when <clears throat> I grow up. <laughs> well, exactly. And let's not forget that Dean has put in, he's he's put in his yeah. his time. You know, he had his seven years, like 10% of his life he spent in the darkness. I mean, he talked about writing in the darkness, but he was in the darkness for those seven years. He said he almost gave up. We we know there's a lot of people listening to this right now who've been hammering away at writing for years and are kind of like just thinking, when is it going to happen? When am I finally going to write that book? When am I finally going to get my break? But remember, like Dean, Dean put those seven years in. And if you are one of the lucky few who who shows up and decides they want to become a writer, writes their first book, gets it published, sells a million copies. You are you are phenomenally, phenomenally amazing because you're one of the chosen few. For the rest of us, it's about the hard graft every day. And and it is a marathon. And it's um, you know, they 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 always say that the longer you stay in the race, you know, the the, the more likely you are to finish and the more likely you're you're gonna be in a very small percentage of people that get across that finish line. So, you know, Dean's Dean's put in the hours and he's he's earned his spurs, so to speak. Um, and he is able to talk from that perspective looking backwards, where most of us are kind of in the mire looking forwards, um, looking forwards in, in the two aspects of looking forwards to when things happen, but also looking looking forward and imagining what life could be like if you could get to a place when you're, you know, at whatever age, um, incredibly successful, selling lots of books. But so, so much, so many good principles, I think, that Dean Dean covered there. And one of them was just, you know, keep keep going, don't ever give up, get to the end. Absolutely. What else jumped out for you? I like the bakery uh, concept. That was pretty interesting. Yes, and that's quite uh, – I'm glad Quive asked that question um, because, uh, you know, my bakery is more of a tiny little cart rather than a full-on, um, you know, uh, bakery. Delicatessen. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> full-on delicatessen, you know. So it it, it was um, – it's – it is great, and if you go to Dean's website, you know there is. You look in there, and it's it's like you know, oh, I can have that. I can have westerns. I can have science fiction. I can have this. I can have that. It is a great choice, and I think that's um, that's a really interesting point. Is is that you need to have, I think, a variety on your backlist, and this is one of the things. You know, he he was he's as you can probably tell, he's quite down on publishers. Um, whereas I I tend to love them, but uh, publishers can constrain you. They can say, "Well, you've written this kind of book, and we only really want this kind of book from you in the future." And you know, it ten years ago that would have been crippling for a lot of writers. Like, well, I I, I want to write this, and right. Well, now you have the opportunity to do that, and I, I don't think it needs to be a binary either or situation. You know, I I I will write what my publisher wants from me because that's what I'm contracted to do. But then I can also write this other stuff and self-publish it and do whatever the, the hell I want. So, um, you know, the opportunities are are there. Uh, yeah, although I must say, Mark, I must say 
and I don't often do this, but I, I do disagree with Dean on that point, and I'll explain why. I disagree because um, it, it it's like we've all, we built the Academy as a choose your own adventure. And the very foundations of why we built the Academy is we want to recognize that every single author is unique. And Dean's approach works brilliantly for him as someone who can prolifically write absolutely and have the time to, to write 250 plus novels. That's very, very unusual for, for someone to have that much time. And so I think to tell people that this is the way you have to do it is great if all of the other conditions fit and it absolutely works and Dean's proof of that. However, let, let's just take it from, say, my perspective as, as um, someone in their 40s with three children. I don't have the time to write the number of hours. I will never write probably 250 books in my life. So I don't want people thinking oh, that's how Dean's done it. We've got to do it. What I would say is take a step back and ask yourself, what are the conditions of your life? If you're if you're able to write, I mean, we didn't ask Dean, but I'm sure he writes many, many hours a day and he's putting out a thousand words an hour. If you're able to do that, brilliant. We've seen Shannon Mayer do it and she has children and she has a child and she manages to do it, but that's her full-time job. What about for the majority of people who those conditions don't apply. I think I would say that actually the reverse is true. And I, you know, again, it's horses for courses. It's just my opinion, but, um, I'm, I'm a, 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 a proponent of the, of the idea of the one thing, like pick a genre and get good in it. And if you get success, then go large, then go broad. If you want to write other genres, don't, don't flip flop between books. Like don't write a romance and then a crime. And then, cause it's, I'll take a music analogy and it's a very clear one when you hear it. But if I, if I were to write an, an album, say um, an electronic album, a heavily electronic album, and then I were to write heavy metal album, my fans wouldn't know what on earth I was up to. And I wouldn't be able to build up a base of fans. So in this day and age of indie authors, we see people like Shannon Mayer. She focuses on one genre. And it's not just one genre. It's a subgenre. It's it's urban fantasy. And that's how she's built up. Now, she's got a big audience now. If she wanted to go and write a romance, and she has actually gone off into a couple of other genres now once she's successful. But I think I think if you're starting out, you should definitely not flip-flop genres because you will spread yourself so thinly that you'll never really get a foothold and you're constantly scrabbling. I mean, I don't know what you think about that, Mark, because you've got different perspectives on... on allow, allow me to play devil's advocate, my lud, uh, and um, contradict my learned colleague. I, I think, though, if you're just starting out, why the hell not write everything and have a smorgasbord, you know? There's, yeah, I that, agree. That could be your thing. That could yeah, be your thing. But, you could but, be the right but, anything person. But not 800-page books, right? I mean, maybe short stories. Do you think? Well, I mean, this is it. What is your ultimate goal? You know, what you, this is, and this is something we ask people on the on the academy to to tell us: what is it you want? What is it? Some people just want to be a crime writer. Good for you. Okay, let's focus on that. Some people, I mean, me, I do want to write a bit of everything. I've written horror. I've written cozy sort of horror. I've written science fiction. I've written time travel. I've written funny stuff. Uh, I'm I'm there's a film project that coming up that might be a rom com, a straight out rom com. Uh, you know, so um, it's just I I like to dits around and do different kind of things probably as you say probably to the detriment of my career if i if i had picked one thing and gone with it maybe i'd have got there a bit faster but i i think the the really important thing that 
Dean said, is having fun in the process. And yeah. all of these things make me happy. And if you're happy, stick it. If you find your genre, as Shannon has, for example, she's found a genre and writing brings her joy, then brilliant. And if you're Absolutely. happy doing that, then fa- And if you can find... Because I, I, I remember talking to um, uh, a writer who worked on the TV show Doctors, which for a lot of writers, screenwriters in the UK is... That it, Doctors is a daily soap opera, essentially set in a hospital uh, or a GP. I've never actually watched it, which is probably why I didn't get to write on it. But that, <laughs> they were, that, and I was like, I don't want to write about Doctors. And, and, and they said, actually, it's kind of almost like a blank template where you can write about whatever you want. So if there's an issue that you want to confront, you can kind of shoehorn it into that and, and you can take fun in it. So they were able to find the joy in writing that, whereas I was like, oh, I don't want to write that. Um, so if you can, wherever you can find joy writing, whatever makes you happy while you're writing, if you can sit down like Dean and me every morning and go, here we go, then you, you're you clearly doing the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, again, it, it goes back to how quickly can you do this? I think my point about, you know, if, if it takes you two years to write one book, then jumping genre is going to be a challenge. If you can, if you can pop out a book a month and you're actually doing it to try different genres and see what one you love, that's brilliant. That's amazing. Cause you want, you do want to like work out what you most enjoy writing. And if you're, and also there's two different types of people. They're the people that are, I mean, in, in the world, you know, there are people who are job for life kind of people. They, they, they pick their one specialty and they become a lawyer or they become a doctor or, or, you know, they become a teacher and that's what their focus is. And you've got nutters like me that kind of do a hundred different projects. And, and I always want to try something different because I'm fascinated by learning. And, and I think people have to also, again, it's a self-reflection on yourself as a person and a writer. Like, do you like to stick with something and go really deep in it? Or do you like the smorgasbord? Do you like the, the the variety? And by understanding that about yourself, I think you can best personally answer whether you're going to become that very deep genre writer or you're going to be someone like Dean that can just pick up anything. I mean, it's again, it's like... Um, it's a bit like musicians. Um, you either you either learn one instrument, you become an expert at that instrument, or you can you become like the multi-talented. Uh, I almost said busker, but that doesn't sound very good. The multi-talented musician that can create their own album and they play a bit of everything. Um, it takes two different types of people. So I think people need to recognise. I think that's the main point. People need to recognise what kind of writer they are, and it's not that. You, you you have to force yourself into one one route or the other, but it's fascinating. I love it. But let's ask our listeners: What kind of writer are you? Are you a writer that wants to to explore different genres um, and loves the idea of variation, or are you a writer that wants to go deep and really kind of like just keep very narrow and niche? Um, uh, it's 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 up for debate. So let us know. Pop over to Facebook, Twitter drop us an email and tell us what what you th- what you see yourself as or if you're going to try something different having heard this podcast as well can we uh, can we talk a little uh, while about Heinlein's rules as well i think we should because that was fascinating yeah, yes uh, just for listeners who don't know robert a heinlein was well he's a giant in american science fiction you know he wrote starship troopers stranger in a strange land and came out of that uh pulp fiction science fiction background where you know you had authors um writing they were paid you know by the word writing for pulp magazines so these guys were knocking out story 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 every day so they they became incredibly proficient at, at what they do and Heinlein's rules which are um 
as I think uh, Dean said, they're pretty much impossible to follow. I think Heinlein himself said they're impossible to follow. So rule one is you must write. Rule two, finish what you start. Rule three, and this is the controversial one. I want to circle back to this. You must refrain from rewriting except to editorial order. Rule four, you must put your story on the market. Rule five, you must keep it on the market until it is sold. Rule six, start working on something else. Now, rule three is the one because... Um, uh, what was it Robert said? He, he, he uh, what Dean said, he said that uh, rewriting is bogus, you know, that thing of listening to your critical voice. And I think rule three is a bit, it's, it's like one of those bits of the Bible that scholars can't quite agree on, you know, uh, it's um, that bit in Life of Brian where they're going, it's a shoe, it's a sandal, it's a shoe. <laughs> and I think this is one of these because uh, this thing of don't rewrite, uh, except to editor. I mean, Heinlein himself later in life, he he confessed that he did revise and rewrite his work. You know, I think people do. Um, my interpretation of it is it's generally a bad idea to stop and try and fix something if you're in the middle of a draft. Get to the end and fix it. This is what I was talking about earlier. Uh, so that's my interpretation of it. I'd be interested to hear other people's interpretations of it as well. But it is um, it is something that I think people hear it and think, oh, okay, oh gosh, have I been doing it wrong? You know. Whereas I think w- once I've finished, I, I love editors. You know, I love publishers. I love that collaboration. I love hearing another opinion on it and if it's constructive i've got to the point now where you know i'll hear stuff from an editor and i don't feel obliged to take it on you know you don't it's not prescriptive i can take it or leave it but having that extra perspective makes me a better writer it it's not you know it's not crippling me it's not killing originality it's making me think oh okay maybe i can bring this to it maybe i can bring that to it and of course not all editors are made equal some are great some uh, kind of average you know so that's my that's my take on that i i think it's fascinating and i also think that anyone who's spent a lot of time writing books probably knows that the more they write the less notes they get in terms of um fundamental structure i know mark you're looking at me now but i know you've said (laughs) recently in coaching that you don't you learn through the process of editing um to correct self-correct things for future for, for, so that so there's 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 a degree of editing which is kind of teaching you the things that that you need to kind of change and work on and so the editing feedback you get changes the more you write yeah and I think it's important as well that um, again it depends it depends on who you are we've had we've had a very small number of authors come on this show saying first draft what do you mean second draft just write your first draft get out of there I'm sure there are people out there who have the talent. To be yeah. able to write a brilliant first draft, but it depends on whether you're the kind of person that that needs three drafts, and if or if you're someone that can just bash it out, and it yeah. is great. I mean, he mentioned he mentioned Dean Koontz, he mentioned Stephen King. I don't think Stephen King's a liar. I think when Stephen King gives out advice, he's giving out advice to people like us who are maybe just starting out or learning. Because I think Dean Koontz, Dean Wesley Smith, Stephen King, they are Mozart, and we're Salieri. Okay, I think mm-hmm. you you do get people where it just comes a little bit easier to them. They just have a natural mm. talent for it. Uh, that it it's where you know. I mean, Dean was saying you know he was never a you know he was not one of these kids who wanted to write from day one. Yeah. He it just kind of came to him. And I think Stephen King. There's, there's a reason why Stephen King writes, why his books feel effortless. And I'm not suggesting that 
Stephen doesn't work hard on his books. I'm sure he works incredibly hard, but he has a knack for story uh, for storytelling that is just on another level. You know, in the yeah. same way that Shakespeare did, in the same way that uh, you know F. Scott Fitzgerald had, or whatever. You know, these these amazing. There are people who are just up there, and we can all just sort of stare up at them and go, "Gosh." Yeah, and be inspired by them, yeah. but not but not say that's how I have to do it because exactly. that's how they do it. Yeah, I think yeah. it's really important to remember that. And um, I think the the last one's quite interesting as well. It, you said in in the um, Heinlein's rules, the one about start a new book, but mm. I'm assuming that you don't wait for it to be sold before no. you start a new book. Six actually comes at, at the once I guess you put it out there and it's That's doing its circle. Yeah. 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 Because yeah, yeah, otherwise I, you'd be you, you could be waiting quite a while no, <laughs> in some instances. No. I mean I'm I, I tend to overlap now, to be honest. So I'm yeah. I'm sort of in the middle of the draft of book three, but I've also just started a draft of a, a screenplay because the ideas are coming and I'm Great. excited about it and I want to get yeah. it down on paper. So uh yeah. I think the crucial thing is you get it finished so you can get it out there. So whilst you're writing in that project, something is out there circulating, which might bring home the bacon. Absolutely. The problem is, is if you've not not finished any of your books, then nothing's out there circulating and guarantee you're not going to get a deal. But I think the more of those kind of um, iron in, irons in the fire that you have, the more chance you're going to hit success. So yeah, really fascinating stuff. We are going to, we're going to go deeper into this. If you want, if you like this kind of stuff, by the way, we're going to dive deep into these types of rules in the academy as well, and also have more of these discussions about who are you as a writer, because that's often the thing that gets missed in all of this. Like, who are you as a writer? Like, you have to learn, you have to build that self awareness, and you only learn it by doing it as well. Yeah. Um, but I love it. I, I the more the more kind of Dean Wesley's we have on this show, the better, because I think it's so great to get kind of differences of opinions because it really opens up um, these incredible discussions as well. So thank you, Dean, for yes. that and all the inspiration that you've given people and all of those breakthroughs as well. So, Mr. Stay, social media quickly before we wrap up. Yeah, just a few things to go. Um, so uh, ah, Hayley Coulter, who we've mentioned on the show before, she writes as HD Coulter. Her new book, Saving Grace, has just come out. She went on a 24-hour writing binge. So she, she wrote solidly for 24 hours, no sleep, only writing. Oh, wow. Over tw 12,000 words, six chapters of book three written. And she actually did it on the 16th of May. She seemed to think I might pass out now. So that was a 24-hour writing sprint. I'm not sure. <laughs> not sure I would do that, but congratulations, That's, Haley. That makes NaNoWriMo sound like a walk in the park, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. Haley, yeah. utterly brilliant and utterly bonkers. And why did you do it? That's what I want to know. Was it just some crazy idea you've had? 12,000 words though. I mean, that's, you know, that's a month's writing for some people. So that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Unbelievable. Absolutely. Um, so that's great. And then uh, we've got Andrea J. Skinner, who um, has started listening to the bestseller experiment early this spring. And now she's finally caught up. She says, I'm going to, I'm going to revise my novel while I consider my next questionable life choice. Just kidding. It's great. <laughs> Loads of info for writers. Go check it out. I have said to Andrea online that counseling is available for people who have binged the show and have had that an overdose of the two of us um so hang in there andrea there is help at hand <laughs> uh 
Um, and last but by no means least, uh, one of our one of the members of our bestseller experiment group on Facebook, uh, Lorna Cook. I saw her book in Sainsbury's the other day, and we've talked about how when you see a book in a supermarket, it's often quite a difficult route to get it in there. So the girl from the island, congratulations on that, Lorna. It was great just to see. Oh, oh, I know her. Brilliant in Sainsbury's. So big congrats there. Ironically, probably right next to the bakery as well, Mark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> brilliant, Lorna. That's so brilliant. How inspiring is that? We actually have a really fun thing on the. Uh, on our bestseller BXP team group, where whenever we see a book of one of the group members, there's only about 200 people in this group. Um, whenever we see a book in a store, you have to take a photo of it and post it up. And there's been quite a few, haven't there? W.H. Yeah. Smith and I... I mean, what's I one of yours, Mark, I believe, recently. Was that I've, right? I've, had, I've had quite a few. It's interesting that um, because bookshops only opened a couple of weeks ago in the UK and it's been almost like the book has been relaunched because, you know, we talked about being a bookshop book. Yes. And again, I take issue with what Dean said earlier in the podcast about bookshops being dead. Certainly in the UK, indie bookshops are thriving. They're actually doing really, really well. And... Um, it's been great because people are finding the book in bookshops and they're sending me photos and it's almost like the book has been relaunched. It's been absolutely amazing. And thank you to everyone who's done that because it completely makes my day. So yeah, absolutely. And if you're new to the podcast, the book is called Crow Folk, just in yes. case you're wondering. And, and I am waiting you, though. I am waiting and we've got a new challenge and I want this. Maybe someone in the Academy could do this for us. The first ever book photographed in a backpacker hostel in the pool. In the pool. Yeah. That's, Wouldn't that's that be amazing? Challenge. Yeah. Because yeah. that's, that's gone beyond the shiny. <laughs> that's the like the one that's been read 30 times where you can't even read the title on the spine. That's, that's the one we all want. But anyway, so well done to everyone. And, um, you know, keep, keep, keep on keeping on folks. This is what it's all about. You know, every single day, get those 200 words down. If you want to write and write and write, join the 200 word challenge, 200 word challenge.com. Join us today and thousands of other people all banking their words. Let's get to 20 million before, ooh, easily before the end of the year, I think. Let's let's set that as a little challenge. If you've got any dream declarations you want to share with us, please email us and write in. Tell us what you want to achieve. We'll publicly declare them on this show, which means you're not getting out of them. Because Mr. Stay's got this most incredible diary where he actually writes everything down. It's quite fantastic. And um, Mark, tell everyone about social media. Yeah, come and find us online. If you want to drop us a line, go to bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there where you can email us and we read them all. Uh, on social media, we are Bestseller Experiment on Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at BestsellerXP. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, if it's changed your life in any way, if it's inspired you, please give us a rating on your podcast provider and subscribe. These things make us a lot more visible and help us get found by other writers. Uh, I thank you, as always, to our editors, Dave and JB, as well brilliant stuff and if you'd like to join mark and i and get privately coached by us in the bestseller academy remember we are opening the doors now get on over get your applications in and we look forward to seeing and uh, getting to know you and your book there and it's academy.bestsellerexperiment.com to sign up so it's a goodbye from mark one and it's goodbye from mark two goodbye, goodbye.